The strange but true story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Hello my friends, a massive thank you for joining me today for episode 42 of the podcast. Apologies that this episode is up a little later than planned. I actually ended up going on a very last minute trip to Portugal, which threw my research and recording schedule completely off track. But it was a much needed and a very lovely break, and even though this episode has been delayed, it won't have a knock-on effect. Our next full episode will still be up on the 13th of September, and there'll be a special bonus episode on the 7th too, to celebrate one whole year of things are about to get weird. I can't believe it's been a year already, I do not know where that time has gone. However, I'm getting ahead of myself with all of that. So for now, let's focus in on the fascinating story I'm going to be telling you today. And just as a quick warning before we begin, there is a very brief mention of sexual assault in this episode, so do be aware of that before we begin. Now, a few weeks ago, when I was a guest on Yvette Fielding's podcast, Paranormal Activity, we got chatting about the notion of detectives consulting psychics as part of things like murder investigations, or even cases where a person's death is completely unexplained. In general, I have some mixed feelings on this. Whilst I do believe that some individuals have very real psychic abilities, my scepticism kicks in when it comes to the motivations of certain people. I've heard about far too many cases where people fraudulently claiming to be psychic have tried to insert themselves into investigations, either for financial gain or for publicity, which obviously leaves a bad taste in my mouth. But... When I came across the case of Teresita Bassa, it sort of turned the whole concept on its head for me, and in some ways it's left me more baffled than ever. And this story all boils down to one rather chilling question. Did Teresita Bassa solve her own murder from beyond the grave? Allow me to explain. On the evening of the 21st of February 1977, the fire department in the US state of Chicago, Illinois, received an emergency call. Around 8.40pm, Mario and Catherine Naze, a couple who lived in a trendy Pine Grove Avenue apartment building, reported to the building's janitor that they could smell smoke coming from one of the flats on their floor. The janitor alerted the fire service, and when they arrived, they were granted access to the apartment via a passkey. Residents were naturally alarmed, not only because of the smoke and the potential fire, but because they were worried for the welfare of their neighbour, 48-year-old nurse Teresita Bassa. Originally from the Philippines, Teresita had arrived in the United States around the mid-1960s and was a well-liked and well-regarded member of the community. She was an incredibly talented musician and a keen writer who practised her art when she wasn't on shift at Chicago's Edgewater Hospital, where she worked as a respiratory therapist. Tragically though, on this night, her neighbours had every reason to be gravely concerned. 
Although at first glance, her 15th floor apartment appeared to be empty, when the firefighters investigated further, they made a gruesome discovery. In the bedroom, they saw a smouldering mattress covered with a pile of burning clothes. And it was only when they put out the flames that they realised what the clothing had been covering. Teresita's lifeless and partially burnt body was found underneath the rags. She was nude and her hands were raised near to her head. But the fire did not appear to have been the cause of her untimely death, as directly in the centre of her chest was the wooden handle of a large kitchen knife, the blade still buried within her. It would have been a genuinely awful sight for those who attended the scene, and a police investigation into what on earth had happened to Teresita was immediately launched. Now, at first, the investigator's theory was that, given that she was discovered without her clothing, Teresita may have been sexually assaulted before she was killed, and that this was the key motive in the crime. Her apartment was in complete disarray, as though there had been a significant struggle before or during the attack. And this suggestion was bolstered by the fact that in a phone call earlier that evening, Teresita had told a friend that she either had or was expecting a mysterious male visitor. But after an autopsy was performed on her body, it was found that she had not been sexually assaulted. And so detectives were back at square one in terms of trying to piece together the events leading to her murder. Despite the chaos in Teresita's apartment, as the police combed through her belongings, they found very few items which offered up any clues as to what had taken place on the night of the 21st of February, or at least nothing that seemed significant to them at the time. And this theme of vague evidence and seemingly little progress stuck with the detectives for the first few weeks following Teresita's killing. Weeks which eventually turned into months. They interviewed just about everyone they could find who had a connection to the nurse, from colleagues to friends and even loose acquaintances. They managed to track down some of her relatives and a couple of former boyfriends too. And although through these conversations, detectives were able to build up more of a picture of who Teresita had been as a person, it brought them no closer to working out who may have been responsible for her death. It became obvious that she had no known enemies and was the kind of woman who got along with everyone just fine. She was described as intelligent and unassuming and it seemed that she had lived a relatively quiet life. They did, however, gather a clearer view of what turned out to be her final few hours. They knew that she'd finished her shift at the hospital around 3pm that day and that she'd spoken to a female friend on the phone at around 7.30pm in the call I mentioned earlier. But there was someone else Teresita had apparently chatted to on the night of her murder too. And this conversation would turn out to be really quite significant. This person was another friend of hers, Dr. John Abeya, 
who Teresita allegedly spoke to on the phone at around 10 past seven that night. This conversation apparently hinged around some tickets the pair were due to sell for a concert, and Dr. Abea told police that during their phone call, Teresita told him she needed to excuse herself for a moment to answer the door. She said that the person who had arrived at her apartment wanted to buy one of their concert tickets. Now, this is interesting for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because if this visitor ended up entering her flat and stayed for some time, it's likely that this was the same male companion Teresita described to her female friend in their phone call just 20 minutes later. And if that was the case, surely this man would have to be considered a person of interest in the investigation, and most likely a full-blown suspect, right? Well, this leads us on to the second reason that this concert ticket angle is so intriguing. Although little physical evidence had been discovered in Teresita's home, one thing police did find was a note in her diary, which simply read, get tickets for AS. Initially, it wasn't clear to detectives what exactly this meant. Did AS refer to a show, a band, a film? or were they someone's initials? But by August of 1977, after around six months of their inquiries leading almost nowhere, an apparent break in the case finally arrived, and it's here that this terribly sad true crime tale takes a turn for the weird. One August day, the lead investigator in the case, Joseph Stachula, received a message from the local police in Evanston, which is a suburb of Chicago. Referring to the Teresita Bassa case, the Evanston officer asked whether the Chicago team had any information on a certain employee at the hospital she worked at. And when Detective Stachula read this employee's name, alarm bells went off for him immediately. The name of Teresita's colleague, which had been flagged up to them, was Alan Showery, a respiratory technician whose initials were, of course, A.S., Stachula wasted no time in calling the Evanston Police Department, but when he got through to them, he was confused to find that the details they were able to offer him were somewhat sketchy. Instead of getting into exactly why Alan Showery's name had been raised directly, the officers in Evanston passed Detective Stachula over to the man who had provided them with this unexpected tip, Dr. Jose Chua. Now, whilst Dr. Tewer did not work at Edgewater Hospital with Teresita and Alan, nor did he know them, his wife, Remy, did. Like Teresita, the couple were originally from the Philippines and had moved to the US some years before to work in the medical field, Jose as a surgical assistant and Remy as a respiratory therapist. When Detective Stachula first made contact with the Tewers, He was surprised to find that they were wary about speaking with him, saying that whilst they had contacted the local Evanston police with some information, they were no longer sure that they wanted to be involved in the investigation. Stachula, however, insisted that he needed to hear what they had to say about Alan Showery's potential involvement with the crime. 
especially given the link with the AS initials note in Teresita's diary. But nothing could have prepared the detective for what Jose Chua would say next. Dr. Chua, who appeared visibly embarrassed and uncomfortable, asked Achula if he believed in the occult or in exorcisms, and the police officer was caught totally off guard. The doctor made it clear that he realised what he was about to say was completely bizarre, and although he couldn't explain it, he had to get it out there. And so, as Detective Stachula listened on intently, Dr. Chua began to recount his recent experience. He described how, one day at their home, his mother-in-law told him that Remy appeared to be acting strangely. Concerned for his wife, Jose walked into their bedroom to find Remy lying on the bed, staring ahead with an eerily blank expression. After he asked her what was wrong, the voice which greeted him in reply was not that of his wife, although it came from her mouth. Speaking in Tagalog, which is a language widely spoken in the Philippines, the voice that emanated from Remy said, Doctor, I would like to ask for your help. The man who murdered me is still at large. I am Teresita Bassa. Now, although the words themselves were alarming enough, they were not the only odd things about the encounter. Although the couple did speak Tagalog, they never used it when conversing with one another, and the voice was described as having a strange Spanish accent. Jose was naturally stunned, and feeling sure that it truly wasn't his wife he was speaking with, he persisted in asking the voice what it wanted with them. The reply from Teresita's voice once again emphasised that she wanted to expose her murderer, and then proceeded to repeat the name Alan Showery over and over again. And that wasn't all. Jose claimed the voice offered up additional details, saying that she had let Alan into her apartment and that he had been a friend, but that he then attacked her, stabbing her in the chest. Jose told Detective Stachula that Remy appeared to be in this trance for around 30 minutes, before she came around and told her husband she needed a glass of water. She had no memory whatsoever of the encounter, and didn't even remember entering the bedroom or lying down on the bed. When Jose told his wife what had just happened, she was as baffled as he was. She said that although she had known Teresita in passing, they worked totally different shifts to one another and hardly interacted at all. In fact, their association was so limited that she'd never even mentioned Teresita's name to Jose, and the doctor said he had no idea who she was. Remy did, however, know Alan Showery, as they worked more closely together at the hospital. After this initial supernatural experience, the couple discussed it at length, and agreed that they could not bring themselves to share what they'd encountered with anyone else, as it sounded completely bizarre, and they were worried they'd be ridiculed if they spoke out. But, according to Jose, this would not be the last time the voice would seemingly take over Remy's consciousness, in order to try and communicate with the doctor. In fact, on two further occasions, 
Remy fell into a trance and the voice appeared to speak through her. It pleaded with Jose for help in bringing about justice for her murder and, fascinatingly, offered up some intriguing new information. The voice said that after the killing, Alan Shari had stolen some very specific pieces of jewellery from Teresita's apartment and after the third and final possession of Remy, the couple decided they could no longer stay silent. And this is when they reported their encounters to the Evanston Police Department, who then contacted Detective Stachula. So, at this point, let's just take a step back and look at this from the investigator's perspective and think about the really odd and unique position this put them in. On one hand, they've been presented with this alleged suspect from what appears to be a spontaneous psychic event, which you couldn't blame them for being sceptical about. But the source of this information is what makes it feel so very odd to me. Remy Chua did not claim to be psychic. She wasn't offering her services to the police. And if anything, both herself and her husband were reluctant to become involved. They weren't pushing to insert themselves into the case. And then there was the diary note, the AS initials. The Chewers couldn't possibly have known what was written in Teresita's private diary. But to detectives, this felt like a significant link. And so, even though it was under the strangest of circumstances, the investigators decided to follow up on this unconventional lead. Although it had come about in an odd manner, they did feel that the AS angle was compelling enough to justify them speaking further with Alan Showery. According to the Washington Post, when Detective Stachula and his team went to Showery's address to question him, they rang his doorbell without their service weapons drawn and said that the suspect went with them to the police station without asking whether he was under arrest. This was on the 11th of August, 1977. At this time, Showery was living with a woman in a building not too far from Teresita's apartment. And after he was taken to the police station, officers asked this female companion, named by Esquire magazine as Yanka Kamluk, whether they could take a look at her jewellery collection. As Shaori sat in the police interview room, telling officers that whilst he did know Teresita Bassa from work, he had not visited her apartment on the night she died. Yanka was showing off a pearl cocktail ring Shaori had given her back in late February as a belated Christmas gift, as well as a striking jade pendant. Remembering what the Chewers had mentioned about Remy's third possession encounter, the detectives asked to take this jewellery with them as potential evidence. And from here, everything began to unravel for Alan Showery. Back at the police station, Teresita's cousin and some friends were brought in to take a look at the items of jewellery. And the outcome of this was clear. The distinctive pieces had belonged to their murdered loved one. And armed with this new and much more legally admissible evidence, 
Detective Stachula was now able to look at Shaori with legitimate suspicion. After presenting him with what they had uncovered in his unsuspecting girlfriend's possession, Shaori crumbled and his story rapidly changed. At first, he said that he had, in fact, gone to Teresita's apartment on the 21st of February, but it was to help repair her broken television. But as he was questioned further and further, his account of the evening morphed into a full-blown confession. He told the police that he was in a bad financial situation, and over the course of getting to know Teresita, he began to believe she had some money tucked away. According to the police report, on the night of her murder, Shari entered Teresita's home after being invited in, before he knocked her unconscious and staged a scene which would make it look like a sexual assault had been committed. After stabbing her in the chest, Shari turned her apartment upside down to find whatever cash and valuables he could, before he set fire to the mattress and clothing her body was discovered with. As a result of this confession, he was, of course, charged with murder, but this was far from the end of the matter. Not long after admitting to killing Teresita, Shaori actually retracted his statement and insisted he was innocent. He said threats had been made to arrest his girlfriend Yanka, who was pregnant at the time, if he didn't confess to the murder. And his lawyer spoke out about how ridiculous he found it that Shari had been initially arrested as a result of Remy Chua's visions, saying, quote, Never to my knowledge has a man been arrested because of a supernatural vision. Police have never before been informed of a criminal's name by a voice from the grave. However, the prosecutors were quick to jump in and confirm that whilst the unorthodox tip had been part of their very early investigation, it formed no part of the formal case and would not be used in evidence at the trial. When the matter did go to court, the jury simply couldn't come to an agreement on the verdict, and the whole thing ended in a mistrial. A brand new trial was then ordered, but while Shaori was waiting for this to begin, he seemed to have a change of heart once more. He switched his plea back to guilty, and he was sentenced to 14 years in prison for Teresita Bass's murder, as well as arson and robbery. Although he served only a fraction of this time and was released in 1983. Now, after doing my research about the main body of this case, I have to admit that I was left feeling a little bit unsatisfied is probably the best word. In many of the articles I read about the story, there seemed to be very little scrutiny of the Chua's account. It was pretty widely accepted for the sensational break in the case that it appeared to be. But then I stumbled across a couple of sources which seemed to comment more on what was allegedly said in court regarding whether Remy Chua could have had an alternative motive in pointing the finger at Shaori. According to a piece on dnainfo.com, Shaori's defence attorney had argued that, quote, 
Chua suspected Shaori of making complaints about her quality of work at the hospital, because, don't forget, whilst Remy didn't know Teresita well, she did know Alan. The same article also claims that Remy had actually lost her job at the hospital, and that her first vision took place just hours after she received the news about this. I will say that I have struggled to verify these points, so I'm not necessarily stating them as facts, I'm just saying that they have been put out there by certain publications. The Chewers did go on to write a book about their experience, entitled A Voice from the Grave, but by all accounts they were keen to step away from the public glare following this and Remy reported no further paranormal happenings in her life afterwards. So, after taking all of this into consideration, what do I make of this incredibly strange tale? If I put on my believer hat and accept that Remy was indeed temporarily possessed by Teresita, seeking justice for her own murder, I could see how it would make sense. Perhaps Teresita's spirit felt that the Chewers would be the ideal people to help her. Like her, they were originally from the Philippines, and they shared a knowledge of the Tagalog language. Jose was a respected doctor, a person who would likely be listened to, and she had vaguely known Remy in life. Plus, the details like the missing jewellery and the AS initials in the diary would have been unknown to the Chewers, surely. But if I take a more sceptical look, I do find it odd that Alan Showery changed his plea multiple times, and that at his full trial, the jury couldn't decide on his guilt or innocence. It makes me believe that aside from the jewellery and diary entry, there couldn't have been much solid evidence against him. If Alan had been the man to visit Teresita on the night of her murder, why wouldn't she have told her friend, Dr. Abeya, that Alan was the one who knocked on her door during their phone call, as they'd have all known each other from work? The jewellery angle is very weird, though, I must admit. Ultimately, I can't help but wonder whether the shocking and sensational nature of the psychic element of the story overshadowed some of the more rational points within it, and I say this as someone who generally does believe in the paranormal. I think had this case happened decades later, and had more advanced forensic testing been available, then there's a chance the outcome might have been different, or at least more definitive. In a way, my thoughts relate back to what I mentioned at the very start of this episode, and that is that I worry about psychic accounts playing a role in criminal cases, because whilst I may believe in them, it's very difficult to validate or prove them, which is obviously the most important thing when we're talking about a trial. But whilst I find myself almost as mystified by this case at the end as I did at the start, I wanted to finish by by remembering the very real victim in this story, and that is Teresita. She sounded like an amazing person, whose love for music was only eclipsed by her desire to help people as a nurse. 
She had a master's degree in music and was planning to write a thesis to earn her doctorate too before her life was so brutally taken. Whether the tale of her spirit's return was true or not, I hope it managed to find some peace, and that those who loved her were able to remember her for the incredible things she achieved in her life, rather than the spectacle that became of her death. Well, are you as baffled as I am? I must know, I'm not often left quite this conflicted by the cases I talk about on the podcast. I feel like my brain is pulling me in two different directions on this one. Please do let me know where you land on this story. You always end up raising some really thought-provoking points, and I can't wait to find out what you made of this tale. But before I let you know about all of the ways you can get in touch, it's time for our outro feature, Weird Media. And just a warning that on this occasion, the item I'm going to be talking about is far less light-hearted than usual. So I apologise about that, but you'll understand as we get more into the feature. I was really in two minds about this recommendation today, but on balance, I decided to go ahead with it because it really has consumed my spare time for the past week or so. Even if you don't necessarily keep up to date with current true crime cases, I'm sure you'll still be aware of the recent trial of the former neonatal nurse, Lucy Letby. On the 18th of August, just a couple of weeks ago, she was found guilty of the murders of seven of the babies that had been in her care at the Countess of Chester Hospital in Cheshire, and the attempted murders of six other infant patients. On the 21st of August, she was sentenced to life in prison, and was handed what's known as a whole life order, meaning it's incredibly unlikely that she will ever be released. It's obviously an absolutely horrific case, and whilst I did read a few articles about it during the trial, it wasn't until Letby was found guilty that I decided to go back and try and understand the case from the beginning. And to do that, I started listening to the podcast, The Trial of Lucy Letby. Now, the reasons for my delay in listening to it were, of course, because of the harrowing subject matter, but also because the podcast is in association with The Mail, which is a publication I try to avoid at all costs. But after giving the first couple of episodes a go, I realised I could get on board, because it really has very little to do with the newspaper, and much more to do with the two female journalists who have produced it, Liz Hull and Caroline Cheatham. In the podcast, they've covered the trial week by week, And as a trained journalist myself with a specific interest in media law, I was so impressed by how they did it. In the UK, when you're covering an active trial, you have to be incredibly careful with how you go about it, because if you get something wrong, you put yourself at risk of being held in contempt of court, which is a very serious matter. As I'm recording this, I'm on episode 34 of their podcast, and from what I've listened to so far, they have been excellent at only reporting information that the jury themselves have heard in court, so as not to do anything that could have influenced the outcome of the case. 
There are also very few ads, which has helped with the feeling of not supporting the male. And overall, I'm finding it to be a fantastic way of understanding the facts of the case without being clouded by the relentless number of conspiracy theories that have emerged on certain social media pages, even whilst the trial was ongoing, which is a whole separate issue in itself. If you've also listened to the Trial of Lucy Letby podcast, which is available in all the usual places, I'd love to know your thoughts. So as always, please do feel free to get in touch. Okay, a few quick shout outs to the sources which helped me with my research for today's story. Firstly, there was a fantastically detailed article from the June 1978 edition of Ebony magazine. I always find that in cases like this one, sources from the time are incredibly valuable because they're often the most accurate. That piece was by John O'Brien and Edward Bauman. Similarly, there was a Washington Post article from September 1978 by Rob Warden, which was brilliant. There was an Esquire magazine piece by Kimberly John Batista from July 2023, and an article from the Chicago Tribune by Mick Swosko from October 2014. We had an article from Mamamia.com from September 2022 by Helen Venuk, and that DNA info piece by Lynn's Rice from September 2016. Finally, there was an article on allthatsinteresting.com from December 2021 by Bernadette Giacomazzo. Right, super quickly, here are all of the ways you can get in touch. On Instagram, our handle is at thingsgetweirdpodcast, and on Twitter slash x, it's at abouttogetweird. On Facebook, if you search for Things Are About To Get Weird, you'll find both the main podcast page and also the private discussion group. There's a link to that on the main page and you can request to join. Our email address is thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com and both our Patreon page and our merch page will be linked in the show notes too. As always, I'm super grateful for your Spotify star ratings and Apple podcast reviews. They really do help to support the show. I'll be back with our one-year anniversary bonus episode on Thursday, where I'll be sharing some of your super strange stories and I'm really looking forward to that. Thank you so much for being here today and I'll speak to you again very soon. Until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird. But the good kind of weird. Thank you.